Freedom Archives is based in San Francisco and contains over 10,000 hours of audio and videotapes which chronicle both revolutionary struggles and state repression. They also create audio and video documentaries of their own. We at Interference Archive reached out to Freedom Archives because of their shared commitment to archiving the histories of social movements. Lani Hanna spoke to Freedom Archives co-founder Claude Marx and his co-worker Nathaniel Moore. So, to start with, if you could please introduce yourself and tell us where we are and the date. November 19th, Nathaniel Moore, we're at the Freedom Archives. And Claude Marks. Alright, and I'm Lonnie Hanna, and I'm here with these two talking about Freedom Archives and their work. Um, So I guess to start out with, maybe each of you could tell us a little bit about your own personal history with um, activism, if you, you know, however much you want to say that might give some light to why you're here at this archive. So maybe the best way to talk about this is that there were a number of us who in the late 60s and early 70s found ourselves doing radio journalism with a totally radical and activist edge, which at the time was fairly marginalized, uh, not considered worthy of kind of keeping it as a historical body of work, but in our own ways, we hung on to the material that we were producing. And even though we've moved on in life, and yet that material was stored in boxes. And it was largely reel-to-reel audio material that included both politics and culture. Um, And for myself, once I found out that that body of material had been stored since I traveled away from the Bay Area, and I realized that actually when I was in prison, um, I reconnected with intent with a lot of the people that I had worked with many years before that, decades in fact, and started a conversation having to do with the historical value and trying to envision the repurposing of this material. And through, again, through networking, we ended up uh, renting a closet, a storage area in the building that we're still in for 60 bucks a month. Um, And that's what got us going. That meant we could unpack it and start to organize and see what we had. I mean, part of your question was about activism. And obviously, everybody who was a founder, if you will, or part of this process had both um, helped to document activism and in most cases um, that political consciousness reflected in what they made of their lives. Um, You know, my case is only one of, you know, half a dozen or more uh, examples of people who'd um, been involved and kept moving. Is your trajectory similar to that brought you to? 
No. <laughs> no, my children, no. That's what not. were you doing in 1968? I, I was still thinking about things. I was still in an infant stage. Um, I guess my intersection with the archives is that um, I did activist work uh, in Illinois and met a mutual friend of Claude's through that work. Um, through the way my life turned out, I ended up moving to the Bay Area, of which I then uh, met Claude and came to the archives. Um, I just thought it was a very wonderful place and started to volunteer. And then through that origin, you know, now Claude and I work together. What is your kind of philosophy or ideology behind the um, preservation of the materials and the accessibility? How, what, are, what are the exact tools you're using to make this material accessible? Um, in, terms of the, in terms of the preservation, um, I think that both Claude and I are very committed to making sure that the materials are safe and that they um, are around for future generations. But I think that that is balanced with both of our commitment to, you know, using these materials to help politically educate today. And so while preservation is definitely a core, you know, part of any archive and definitely of the Freedom Archives, um, we really spend a lot of our time and energy on how can we best repurpose some of these historical materials to connect things in the past with movements that are happening today, uh, issues that still remain pertinent to our society, um, you know, really making, bringing history out of kind of the, the pigeonholes in the past and really making it part of just how we live our lives and that we all make history and are a part of history. Um, and so in terms of the preservation, obviously that's a key part, but really, you know, this archive is as much about education uh, as it is about um, preservation. I think there's a couple of aspects of it that I would expand on a little bit. First of all, we're blessed with being the keepers of some very valuable stuff. It's not ours, so we don't act like large institutions. It's intentional that this is part of the community and belongs to the community. Um, and a lot of people may have roots to it that aren't even aware of it because they're not aware of what material is there. It's subjugated history because of its radical nature. It's subjugated culture because it has the power to spark the imagination and to um, be part of a history of resistance and to contribute to that looking forward. So it's dangerous as a body of knowledge in the sense that it challenges the fundamental structure of what U.S. imperialism is, to use a big word. But really, that's why none of this stuff is part of a curriculum that, that exists in a public, in, in a public uh, school, for example, because you know people need to be taught a different set of values than what's expressed by the generations that have resisted that kind of oppression and those oppressions. And so we know that 
we can't in order for that material to continue to speak that we have to be we have to become proactive uh, we want to be in places and bring people in our doors who are young who don't have a necessarily an academic approach at all but who can just get inspired so can you tell me a little bit about or the organizing structure here at the archive um um, my, my personal observation on it is I feel like a lot of the same values that really were used to create the material in the first place carry through in terms of the way things are done today. I think in addition to that, you know, we do have to function in some kind of context. We are a corporate entity in the eyes of the state, so we have a board, but the board is comprised of very you know, radical, forward-thinking, diverse folks with the idea of ensuring that we really predetermine our strategy for any given period. I'll just give a quick example because I think it's a helpful way to, to see how we are thinking about things at any given point. We... Um, were involved in uh, a situation where in 2003 there were grand juries investigating 36-year-old cases focused on um, the Black Panther Party and um, a police killing that happened in San Francisco and it was a case that it turns out that because of the collective work going back we were in the 70s, in 73 and 4, able to expose a bust that happened in New Orleans by cops from, you know, different jurisdictions, federal, local, etc., uh, in which members of the Black Panther Party were arrested and tortured, and a case was brought against them here in San Francisco. And at that time, um, we did a lot of radio journalism to expose the torture. So that case was dismissed in the mid-70s because of that. So when this crops up again post 9-11 because of the need to like feed the public with fear and justify repression, we jumped into action. So grand jury brings in a bunch of former Panthers who refused to cooperate and the grand jury expires and we sat down with that collective of, of people who were being targeted and went about making a film that talked about the history of the case called Legacy of Torture that drew on the material that we'd created in the 70s because it was the same case being brought against virtually the same people. So that film premieres on a Sunday, and the previous Tuesday, people are actually arrested. So not only do we have a film premiere, but we also hold a press conference and hand copies of the film out, which the impact of which has to do with challenging the state's language and narrative about what happened. So not only do we 
have a case that is about cop killing, but we have a vehicle from the very beginning to start to mobilize people. So that becomes a vehicle, not so much for the archives, but for organizing, um, and had a lot to do with communicating and building a movement that resulted in a defeat of the state's intent to re-prosecute people. I don't know, that's a way that history can speak in an impactful way and can be contributing to building a, a very broad movement to reject the intent of the state to maintain a level of, of, of repression against people. You, I mean, you mentioned a lot of different types of programs. What, kind of pro, what kinds of programming do you find your community most receptive to? The films or the search? I mean, I think there's, I think the problem with, uh, you don't really know the impact sometimes. Like, it's hard to know the impact of a search engine, as an example, right? So, you know, we might know how many hits from month to month we get, and that, you know, we got 500 more hits in, in July than in June, but it's hard to know the actual, to measure the actual impact of that. Um, I think when we see the impacts of our programming, it's often when we hold events or those t- you know those types of things that brings people together, and then you have that you know personal interaction that um, you know, and you kind of see the community and and where people are at, and so you know that that's kind of an impact. Um, Here's another example. We did a. F- a film that we released at the end of 2011 uh, called COINTELPRO 101 that tries to open the door to understanding um, government repression against radical movements. And here it is four years later and that film is still being used. It's still being shown. It's used as fundraisers for community groups that are doing uh, that are trying to resource resistance to unrestrained police violence to this day. It's shown internationally. It was aired on television in Cuba and Venezuela and translated um, by people in Denmark and still used in classrooms. I mean, it's not just what we do with it. It's kind of out in the world and that, you know, we can mark, you know, we can try to keep track of, you know, who's putting the word out about the film on the web, but it's just very difficult to do because it's proliferated so much. Can you access all your films on your website? Yes. Right. So you don't have to buy them. Right. That's nice. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, is there anything specific, like, that you have moving forward um, or that you want to talk about or um. why don't you talk about the film we're working on sure um, so in terms of moving forward um, we do have a film that we are working on um, that basically talks so Claude mentioned COINTELPRO 101 and there is a part of that film that focuses on the uh, government repression of the Chicano movement in the Southwest is mainly the focus of the film. And so 
you know, now that film has kind of been going, you know, it's been circulating for now a number of years, and one of the things that, you know, really since it came out that we've been sitting on is wanting to investigate that a little bit further, right? Like, within the film, we did pretty comprehensive jobs of talking about the way COINTELPRO affected other movements, and it's a little bit more widely documented. But we really wanted to explore uh, the the COINTELPRO's effect on the Chicano movement more. In the process of doing that, we really has opened up a number of other doors that have become equally as interesting and as um, subjugated as Claude was talking about also earlier. And so some of the things that are going to come up are obviously like the, the vibrant student movement in Colorado, um, land issues um, th throughout the Southwest, um, that's kind of what we're doing now and, you know, kind of also excited to really showcase some of the archival materials that we have um, around the Chicano movement and lesser known aspects of that that are just in the archives, some of which might be related to certain storylines in the movement or in the movie and some of which are, you know, separate. Um, so we're excited about that and we're working hard on that. But we also have a capacity to step up when things happen. So when Ugo Pinnell was assassinated in a California state prison in August, Ugo Pinnell being one of the original San Quentin Six, somebody who was locked up for over 50 years, more than 40 of them in total isolation, um, when he was killed, we were able to put together within a few days a um, documentary, a, a radio documentary based on his last recorded interview with comments by the, the members of the San Quentin Six who have already served their terms and are out on the streets, uh, including Emery Douglas, who was a childhood friend of Ugo's in the streets of San Francisco, Emery Douglas being a, a former Minister of Culture for the Black Panther Party, a comment by a comment from Mamiya Abu Jamal about him. Um, so we were able to respond to an immediate event and contextualize it historically and pay tribute. To, the, to Ugo Pinnell, who many people don't know who he is, and his lifelong commitment to struggling for, you know, his human rights, and collectively was part of the hunger strikes in the state of California that happened over the last four years. So, you know, this is a way in which history becomes very critical to understand something that happens. Um, and so the technology at this point is such that, that that can not only be produced but can be disseminated across the country on radio stations and, and was um, because, you know, we have the, the resources to be able to do that. Great. Well, thanks. I appreciate uh, the time and the work you guys are doing. So. Thank you. Thank you.